I felt that my role as a journalist was to paint that comprehensive picture. I wanted people to be informed about what was going on in their community so that they could make appropriate choices at the polls, for example, so that they could lobby for things that they felt was important for them. Again, I was wanting to make the people in the affluent neighborhoods care about the people in the impoverished neighborhoods. And I still think that is important. So many times as crime reporters, I know that I'm speaking for many of my colleagues out in the field. When I say this, we're wanting to scream from the rooftops, like, pay attention. This is what life is. You live in your bubble over here. This is the suffering that is happening right in your own backyard. What are we going to do about it? And I still agree that's important, but I just think that we need to go about it in a different way. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today you're going to hear from Tamara Cherry, who's a trauma researcher, author and communications consultant. who spent the bulk of her career as an award-winning crime reporter in some of Canada's largest newsrooms, including the Toronto Star, the Toronto Sun and CTV News Toronto. In 2019, she left journalism to launch Pickup Communications, a public relations firm that supports trauma survivors and relevant stakeholders. Tamara is also the author of The Trauma Beat, a case for rethinking the the business of bad news. And in The Trauma Beat, Tamara draws on the experiences of more than 100 trauma survivors, from homicides to traffic fatalities, sexual violence to mass violence, as she reflects on all the ways she gets things wrong. She got things wrong as a crime reporter when she thought she was getting them right. And we're really pleased to have you with us today, Tamara. Thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, Tamara. Very nice to meet you. Thanks for coming along today. Thanks for having me, Ed. So tell us, how did you come to be so interested in the ethics of news coverage? Did you start your career as a, a journalist, being so focused on this? Tell us about your career pathway. No, I did not. I did not start my career this way. I actually went into journalism school a million years ago thinking that I would write for snowboarding magazines. And on my first internship at the local newspaper in Regina, Saskatchewan, I fell in love with news. And more specifically, I fell in love with telling stories that could make people feel something or could make people care about something. So I remember a few days into my first internship interviewing an author from New York whose father had died uh, after a a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. And by the end of the 45 minute conversation, she was crying, I was crying, and it just, it really sparked a love in me for that kind of writing, writing those types of stories. So then fast forward, my next internship was at the Calgary Herald, a bit bigger. I had a chance to, you know, sit on the cop desk, quote unquote, listening to scanners, covering breaking news, that sort of thing. And it was hard, but I enjoyed the challenge. Not until my next placement at the Toronto Star, when I was working in something called the Radio Room, which is essentially a place where a lot of young journalists get their start at the Toronto Star where you report only from inside the newsroom. You're surrounded by police, fire, and ambulance scanners. You're monitoring the other news outlets, and you are constantly just bombarded by negative stories and reporting negative stories. It's a 24-hour place that is, you know, it's active 
all day long. So you're either working 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., 4 p.m. to midnight to 8 a.m. And you are just, you know, calling the local staff sergeants at the local police divisions, calling local fire captains, calling through apartment buildings, neighborhoods. Anytime something bad happens, you know, you're getting the phone book or the digital phone book, as it would turn out, and just calling through lists, looking for witnesses and that sort of thing. And at the time, I never really considered the impact that my work was having on the people that I was reporting on beyond the fact that I really felt like the work that I was doing was towards the greater good. So if I was interviewing a homicide survivor about their murdered loved one, I wanted the world to know who their loved one was. I thought that the world needed to know. You know, there's a great quote in a journalism book that one of my supervisors to come in the television world would point me towards. And it's from, I believe, a journalist in Seattle who said something to the effect, and I apologize to this journalist if they're watching, I'm not remembering um, your name or the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of, you know, names and pictures make people real. They make us realize who is missing from our collective lives. And I thought that was so important that we had to tell these stories. I thought that it was so important to go in and speak to the mother in the impoverished neighborhood right after her son was murdered so that I could tug at the heartstrings of the mother in the affluent neighborhood and maybe affect some change and put an end to this gun violence that was shattering so many lives. So as far as ethical journalism goes, I really thought that the work that I was doing was important and that is what was driving it. But again, I didn't realize and I didn't stop to learn about what impact, you know, the very nature of the news gathering and storytelling process might be having on those very people that I was reporting on, let alone on myself as a young journalist. So given what you just described, really, as being right in the midst of these highly dramatic events where there may be the occasional hero, but certainly there nearly always are victims. How do you go about doing the equation of balancing the needs of the public, the needs of the organization you're working for, and the subjects of the story? How do you do that? I'll start in reverse there. So with the subjects, I always felt that being a compassionate journalist was all I could really do. You know, if I brought compassion and empathy, and I was a very compassionate reporter. I was very empathetic. I, I, I would cry for these trauma survivors on my drives home from various crime scenes across the city. I would have tears in my eyes during some of the interviews that I would do. There are many times that I remember, you know, in my later years working as a television reporter, you know, pounding out my scripts in, in the live truck and, you know, listening back to interviews. And I've got tears streaming down my face the camera guy has tears streaming down his face. The truck operator has tears in his eyes. We all felt something for these people. And I thought that my good intentions were good enough. So that's number one, that I, I was wrong in that. And that's something that I've come to realize that good intentions when you're working with trauma survivors are not good enough. In terms of balancing the needs of my organization and of the public, first, journalism is a highly competitive industry. As you in the UK, well known, you know, we don't have the extent of tabloid journalism that you guys have, but it's still mainstream media is very competitive. So it was not unusual. I mean, it was just a given that if somebody's murdered or if a child is struck and killed by a vehicle, we got to go out and get 
that pickup, which is where the name of my company comes from, pickup is what we would refer to as the the act of getting a picture and hopefully an interview with that deceased person's family. So it wasn't unusual for me to hear like, Tamara, we've got to get a pickup of that murder victim from last night. Or Tamara, where's the pickup of the five-year-old that was run down yesterday? Or Tamara, how did that news outlet get the pickup? But you said the family wasn't talking. So the competition drove a lot of things. But also, I think that the news media does things in a certain way, simply because it's the way they have always been done. You know, we, we never really stop to think that there might be a different way of doing things. And so we're really driven by competition and really trained to gather as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, so as to tell as comprehensive a story as possible. So that was sort of like the needs of my organization. In terms of the needs of the public, I felt that my role as a journalist was to paint that comprehensive picture. I wanted people to be informed about what was going on in their community so that they could make appropriate choices at the polls, for example, so that they could lobby for things that they felt was important for them. Again, I was wanting to make the people in the affluent neighborhoods care about the people in the impoverished neighborhoods. And I still think that is important. So many times as crime reporters, I know that I'm speaking for many of my colleagues out in the field. When I say this, we're wanting to scream from the rooftops, like, pay attention. This is what life is. You live in your bubble over here. This is the suffering that is happening right in your own backyard. What are we going to do about it? And I still agree that's important, but I just think that we need to go about it in a different way. Thank you. You said something earlier on. I think you said good intentions aren't enough. I wondered if you could expand upon that a bit. For sure. So if you would have asked me five years ago, are you a trauma-informed journalist? I would have said, first off, I don't know what that is. I've never heard that term before. In my nearly 15 years as a crime reporter, nobody ever mentioned the term trauma-informed or trauma-informed journalism. And then I would have said, I mean, yeah, I deal with trauma on a daily basis. I'm speaking with victims and survivors on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day. What more could I possibly know about trauma? The problem is I didn't know about trauma. I didn't understand until my research project examining the impact of the media on trauma survivors and the impact of trauma on members of the media. I didn't understand how trauma worked. I didn't understand how it impacted the brain, how it impacted somebody's ability to tell their story in a comprehensive way how it impacted things like memory, how the very images, sounds, words that I would use to tell my stories could send somebody into a state of fight or flight. I didn't understand how I could trigger those trauma responses, how I could, you know, send somebody's heart rate racing just by, well, I say just, that's how I would have thought of it before. Now I understand the enormity of it. But for example, showing images from a crime scene in a murder that happened several months ago. Let's say that there's a murder that happens in this neighborhood in Toronto, and it is the third homicide to happen in that neighborhood since the beginning of the year. I It would have been commonplace for me to say, you know, this is the fourth homicide or third homicide to happen in this neighborhood since the beginning of the year. Here are the other three. And then suddenly, people who weren't expecting their trauma to be on the public stage again are seeing an image of their loved one's body 
being removed from a crime scene in a body bag. I didn't understand the impact of even using that image to begin with until I did my research. So my good intentions of being compassionate, empathetic, you know, really caring about these people, they weren't good enough because a lot of what I was doing, as I said, as part of the story, the news gathering and storytelling process were causing harm. And they continue to cause harm in the way that many of these stories are told with the, again, the sounds that we play. You think about mass violence incidents. I know that anytime I hear about an incident of mass violence, it is just a matter of time, probably a matter of like minutes or hours that we are going to get that dramatic cell phone video from inside the school or the nightclub or whatever it is where you can hear the sound of gunshots, where you can hear the sounds of people screaming, where you see people fleeing and running for their lives. All of that stuff can uh, bring on the trauma responses, not just of the people who are involved in that specific incident, but of countless others who are involved in similar incidents, who are suddenly hearing those sounds and being brought back to that moment of their traumatic event. Yeah, that's so, so true. So really you're saying you need to add uh, thoughtfulness and sensitivity to good intentions yeah oh yeah you have to learn about trauma and one thing I will add to that beyond learning about trauma when it comes to good intentions are not good enough the news business is such that you know we work in such a fast-paced environment that as soon as we get that name of that victim we are looking down the phone book we're searching social media we're knocking on doors looking for that family not understanding that many times, at least here in Canada and the United States, where my research took place, that homicide survivor, that traffic fatality survivor, whatever it is, the mass violence survivor who thought they were about to die, they haven't even been in touch with somebody like a victim services person or a survivor support worker. And there we are arriving at their door when they're in a complete state of shock. Many times, you know, they're telling us, no, we don't want to talk. And we are cajoling them into these interviews and I say that word, and I know it has a very negative connotation, but again, as a journalist, my intentions were very good. You know, like if you just come out and talk to us for just two minutes, we're all going to go away. We'll all leave you alone. That's not okay. You know, if they don't want to talk, we should just leave them all alone. But our offices, our bosses are telling us, stick around just in case they start talking to somebody else. You can stick your mic in there, you know, ask them and give them a few hours and then go see if they change their mind. And what I learned from my research was many times that could cause further trauma down the road when that cloud of shock had lifted and survivors reflected back on those early hours and felt that they were exploited, they were taken advantage of, that they were convinced to talk when they knew they didn't want to talk, that they were portrayed in a way that they didn't feel represented who they were at the time or in the present tense. Thank you very much. So you're immersed in these highly dramatic uh, situations that we've mentioned already. And you've also mentioned your desire to have an influence, to, to change things. But is there any research on whether these highly charged and emotional stories ever bring about any change? Not that I have found. I would love to find something that shows me that, you know, showing a body bag on TV makes people pay attention and makes people uh, care. I would love to see something that shows me that showing that grieving mother on TV leads to an arrest in a case. 
then it, that statistically speaking, you're more likely to get that right tip in a homicide if you have that grieving next of kin on camera crying into the microphone. I have heard certainly anecdotally from homicide investigators that, yeah, if you have that family talking, tips come in, but it's not necessarily the right tips. It's people might want to help, but very rarely, especially in this day and age of surveillance cameras and cell phone video and dash cam and all that stuff. It's very rare that I, I actually can't think of one instance where a grieving mother or father, whoever on TV led to that tip coming in. Another thing that we can't quantify that I would love to see is the stories that we do on impaired driving. So when I surveyed and interviewed survivors of traffic fatalities, many of them were survivors of, of drunk driving, impaired driving. They can pretty consistently told me, we don't want to see the car wreck images. Don't show us that because all I can see is my loved one dead inside that car. Even if you can't see the body or anything like that, that's all they can see is their loved one crumpled inside that car. And it's incredibly harmful for them. And they lobby newsrooms like remove this image, you know, all this stuff. I would love to see research that shows us that showing those images that I think that society has become quite desensitized to actually makes people leads to less fewer instant instances of impaired driving, for example. One case that I refer to in my book where I'm reflecting back on this ride along that I did. I, I'm not sure if you guys would call it the same thing in the UK, but where basically I went along with police as they were out looking for impaired drivers. And it was like shooting fish in a barrel. They were just arresting person after person, like nine o'clock on a Friday or Saturday night. And the first person that they arrested was somebody who had, you know, he had run into some parked vehicles, caused all this damage. And he was like stumbling drunk. And I think he blew three or four times the limit. And this guy was arrested not far from a place where three children and their grandfather had been killed by a drunk driver in not too long before that. It was huge national news, huge local news. Everybody knew about this case. We showed the images of the crumpled minivan. We interviewed the grieving parents. We showed the images of these children and their grandparent who had been killed and other loved ones who had been injured. We told all of these most heart-wrenching stories. And yet this man and so many others were still driving drunk. So do those make a difference or do something else make a difference? I have seen research on the impact of, for example, showing high school students an hour long presentation about impaired driving where you might have an impaired driving offender come and talk about what happened or a, a survivor of an impaired driving fatality come and speak about the impact. I have seen that the numbers that show that can lead to fewer high school students, for example, choosing to drink and drive. But what's the impact of the 90 second news story or the 400 word print story and the image on TV what is the impact of that? I haven't seen the research of it, but I would love to see it. Again, anecdotally, something that I do as one of my the many hats that I wear here in Canada is I act as a fill-in radio host on some pretty big radio shows and it's talk radio. So I like to do you know, topics that will have callers calling in. And every once in a while, I'll do the topic like, what do you want from your news? Do you want to see the body bag or do you change the channel when you see the body bag. Do you want to see that video? And 
I constantly hear from people that saying, no, we don't want to see this. I always think like you're exploiting that family or it's just, it's uncomfortable to watch that interview that they want things done in a more thoughtful way. You know, and I heard this very consistently through my research, but also people that listen to the news and or call into these radio shows that if they're in, they were involved in a traumatic event, that was the sort of event that would be covered on the news, whether it's a homicide, a traffic fatality, an incident to mass violence, they just don't watch the news anymore, or they don't read the news, or if they consume the news, they are doing it in a very controlled way, where it's something where they can click into it, as long as there's not a thumbnail image of, you know, some sort of violent event, you know, but they just stop watching. I When I was hosting this radio show in Toronto, I heard from a man who told me that he and his wife were present for a mass violence incident in the United States that I had actually that I had actually looked into for my book. And, you know, they don't watch the news anymore because they're too afraid of seeing those dramatic images and what that will do to them physically and psychologically. So that is a person in the greater Toronto area who doesn't watch the news because of a traumatic event that they experience. That one was down in Florida in the United States. So the imp like the ripple, it, it really is quite broad. And the impact, I think, even when we consider the most narrow impact of our work, you know, just being, you know, that the survivor from that one story, you know, we might justify it by saying, well, yeah, but the greater good is being served. It might cause them harm to speak with us in the immediate aftermath, but the greater good is being served. We're affecting change. A, I don't know that we necessarily are affecting the change that we're after, but B, the harm that we're causing oftentimes is actually much broader than what we assume. Uh, as you were talking, Tamara, I was also reminded that there might also be a paradoxical effect because I think, you know, in election campaigns, there's been a tendency to think, well, actually, if we cover how much poverty there is in the country, that people will vote for more left-wing parties. And actually, it doesn't have that effect as the total opposite effect, because it's almost like people become so frightened, they don't want to associate themselves with the group that might be at risk of poverty. So they end up moving more towards the more right-wing parties where you they would get less help anyway. So, you know, without studying the psychology of what the impact of these stories is, it's very easy to see that we could end up promoting stories that actually are distorting um, mm -hmm. influences in our society that we perhaps wouldn't want to have. And that is really interesting and how ironic. And I, I would be interested to see similar research on that when it comes to crime stories. But it's further, you know, there has been research on the impact of the sort of wall-to-wall -wall news coverage that we have after a, an incident of mass violence, that the impact that has on news consumers and that's something I also like to remind people of. If you are a news consumer who is watching that 24-hour news station after an incident like a mass shooting, and you're watching that wall-to-wall -wall coverage, you're actually at an increased risk of developing PTSD just by virtue of consuming the news. You didn't have to be anywhere near it. You didn't have to know anybody involved in the event. You certainly didn't have to be there yourself. Just by consuming the news, you're at a higher risk of developing PTSD. And I find that very interesting because then if we're not serving the survivors, if we're not serving the investigation and we're not serving the news consumer, what good is coming from this? You know, like clearly people are clicking on stories and there's ad revenue coming in and all that stuff, but we haven't tried the model of not showing that very dramatic stuff of doing it in a different way of seeing how many clicks we're going to be sacrificing by doing our journalism 
in an ethical way and in a thoughtful way. So it, it's interesting because the impact does go beyond. And not only that, but we have a tendency to skew the reality. So people can feel unsafe when statistically speaking, they're actually very safe. And something that I often say, because I do a lot of work like with the law enforcement community is that like the perception of safety is in a community is just as important as actual safety. In my view, if somebody doesn't feel safe in their home to the point that they're not letting their kids go out and play in the park because they're too afraid they're going to be hit by a bullet, that is a huge problem that needs to be addressed. And I think that is certainly something that the media plays into, although that's not really the issue that I was after in my research. It is something that is worth noting, I think. We mustn't uh, forget, though, tomorrow that human nature is extremely complex. And whilst you may get feedback that people don't want to see those horrible images, there will be websites which have nothing but horrible images and people go and search them uh, out. But it reminds me, of course, that you as journalists, I'm sure you see much more horrible things than we see on the screen. Yeah, I, I received an email not too long ago, actually, from a person who said that they were in the news industry for a long time. And they had just read an article. I think the article they were referring to is one that I had written about the injury that I had to my own brain from all the trauma, traumatic exposures that I had over the years. And they said I could... So much of what you wrote resonated with me. Like I was a camera guy in the field for a few years, but I honestly, though, I didn't spend that much time in the field. Most of my time I spent as an editor back at the station and they were sort of downplaying the traumatic exposures that they would have experienced. And I said like, whoa, like don't pass that off. There has been research that shows the impact of even just being an editor at a news station with the, the content that comes in. So for example, cell phone videos that are submitted to, to news inboxes or that show up on social media and any content that is sanitized for the supper hour newscast, it's viewed first by an editor or by some other journalist or producer. And often many times, especially if they need to edit it or add blurs or whatever, I think about a camera guy that I worked with for many years who is in my book. And he was, you know, the consummate professional, just an amazing guy. If I was working with Jeff on any given day, like that was a good day. And we worked together for close to a decade. And I had no idea that he was suffering from PTSD from the time I met him until the time that my research began. And he reached out to me to talk to me about it. And the things that he described are things that would never make the newscast. Things like he was a camera operator in our news helicopter for a number of years and arriving at a scene where a body had been found and seeing somebody who had died by suicide. That's not going to make the news, but it ends up in his brain or being at the scene of a traffic fatality and rolling on, you know, a couple that is arriving at the scene and going and talking to police and then collapsing as they realize it was their child that was was killed and, or their, you know, their loved one that was killed and such a dramatic moment that didn't make the news, but it made its way into his brain or the constant traumatic exposures by way of interviewing these homicide survivors day in and day out and, and listening to very disturbing court testimony day in and day out and seeing the exhibits that are in court. Like there are so many traumatic exposures that journalists have and a term again, that I didn't know not until my research, but actually before that, when I started looking for a therapist to 
figure out what the heck was going on with me some years ago was, you know, vicarious trauma, that, that you can absorb the trauma of, of people that you're working with. And as a prime reporter, you know, I was often talking to people on the worst day of their life. And that made an impact. But we as journalists, just as people in so many other industries, sectors, corrections, you know, policing, paramedics, it's so similar where we feel that, you know, well, my husband wasn't killed. My husband is still alive. Who am I to suffer? Or my children are still alive. Who am I to suffer? Or I'm leaving this impoverished neighborhood where the kids are playing outside the police tape. I'm going back to my safe neighborhood, my steady income, all this stuff. Who am I to suffer? Like we're very good at removing ourselves to that extent and brushing off any pain or signs of emotional distress that we might be feeling by saying like, this didn't happen to me. So who am I to suffer? And that is harmful because not getting the help that you need or having that outlet to talk through these things at the time, it can build up and, and rear its ugly head many years down the road. Or in the present day, I had a lot of colleagues that turned to drug and alcohol abuse to, as I realize now, I mean, I realized it at the time, it was just a given that, you know, you sort of, you drink your problems away or you drink the day away. Like journalism, historically speaking, the culture, there is a lot of drinking involved. You go to the pub after work. And I would say that's less so now, but that is, that's the stereotype. That's historically speaking. And that's there for a reason, just as it is in the, the first responder community, because it's these core coping mechanisms that we use. So yes, I talk to journalists a lot about the risks of vicarious trauma, but even more so I speak with them about the risk of moral injury, because I tell them like, you cannot truly take care of yourself unless you're taking care of the people you're reporting on. Because if you are doing something that you feel in your gut isn't right, knocking on that door in the immediate aftermath, God forbid, knocking on that door after you've already been told no, or sitting on that street, waiting for somebody to come out or waiting by the memorial for somebody and going up with your microphone and your camera, that all chips away at your soul. And I've spent a lot of money on therapy dealing with vicarious trauma, but I probably spent more money dealing with moral injury, suffered from the job and suffered from my research project that confronted me with all of the ways that the additional ways that I caused harm that I didn't even realize at the time. Thank you. We're very grateful for you talking to us today, Tamara. And I should have mentioned before, but uh, your book is called The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News. And we'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes too. Thank you. So just to move on slightly, because you're clearly a, a journalist with the great yeah, integrity. And in the old days, like not so long ago, we used to know what the news was. It came on at 10 o'clock or 6 o'clock or midday or something like that. And that, that was uh, news. Today, it's very difficult to know what news is because something called news, or which purports to be news, is on 24 hours a day. What kind of difference has that made to you? Huge difference. I'm no longer a daily news journalist, but when I was, I left in late 2019. And at the time, as a TV reporter, I was filing for all those regular newscasts. So my shift would technically be 10.15 to 6.15. And I'd be filing for the noon show, the six o'clock show. Between that, I would be filing to our 24-hour news station, the national affiliate. If it was a really big story, I would be getting up early and doing hits for all the morning shows 
across the country. In addition to that, it was always digital first. So we were always filing stuff to the web. That was what we were supposed to do first. So if I arrived at the scene of a shooting, they wanted a picture immediately sent to the web and a couple lines of what I saw, what I heard, what we knew, what we could verify, that sort of thing. And sometimes that stuff would end up being, you know, not news, as you say, maybe something that appeared to be a homicide actually was somebody who had died by suicide, for example, and not a story that we would typically cover in the news. But further, the competition is so much more fierce to get it first, because we're no longer just competing against media outlets that are doing 24-hour news coverage. We're also competing against social media. So if social media has something out there, a citizen journalist, John Doe, has tweeted, oh, this is what's happening here, then we want people following the news website, not the social media people who are tweeting out their information or throwing it on Instagram or whatever. So there's so much more competition and so much more stress involved and need to produce content that we are working even faster than before to do things like those door knocks or calling down those phone lists, or sending out those media, or those requests on social media. Homicide survivors and survivors of mass violence who were present for an incident of mass violence are being bombarded like immediately many times. And, you know, many journalists that were involved in my research, they told me, most journalists said that they would contact trauma survivors within 24 hours of a traumatic event, or as soon as they had the information to do so. So if, if we know immediately who it was that died, we're looking for their next of kin. If we are at the scene of something that happened, say an incident of mass violence, we're sticking our microphones in people's faces immediately, you know, as they're perhaps fleeing an area or, and this is one of the most like regrettable things that I did as a journalist and many journalists do is waiting at hospitals where something has happened going into ICU waiting rooms, waiting outside of emergency rooms. I had journalists who were involved in covering the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting some years ago, talk to me about having to wait outside the emergency room doors at the, the local hospital there, interviewing people as they were leaving. And then later at a family reunification center, they don't call them those anymore because not all families are reunited. And swaths of media just surrounding these people, like a hundred journalists from all over the, the country and all over the globe, following these people to their car after they've just received news that their loved one was among the dead. The competition is so fierce. So I think that not only has it made journalism worse because we're not always reporting the correct facts, we're not always corroborating information before it's going to air or to print, or to, to the online most often, or to social media. But not only that, but we are also causing so much more harm because we're not taking that breath to think, okay, should we be knocking on this door yet? This actually only happened a couple of hours ago. Or should we be reaching out to that person? Or should we be showing this cell phone video? And if we do, should we be showing it over and over again? When are we going to give people a break? You know, in, in the aftermath of the one October shooting in Las Vegas at the, the, the Harvest One Music Festival, there was cell phone video showing it where you could hear the, the barrage of gunfire that was shown on a loop for days after that shooting happened. Did we need to see it at all? I don't know. That's a conversation that we should have. 
But did we need to see it over and over again? I would say absolutely not. And I would say that if we were showing it ever, there needs to be a thoughtful conversation ahead of time of what people are about to see in those images or hear in that video beyond just a warning to our viewers that you might find this content disturbing. Why? What are the potential triggers here? What are, you know, what is a reason that somebody might say, you know what, I'm going to turn it off because I know this isn't good for my brain because I was involved in a high school shooting some years ago and I avoid this stuff. So I'm just not going to watch it. But we're not having those thoughtful instances. There's another case that I refer to in my book where a woman in Ontario had been killed by her intimate partner and or her ex, I think it was. And the homicide had happened, like, I want to say late morning around 10 a.m., and I was helping out a colleague who was at the scene, who was racing to the scene to try to file something for noon. And I was helping them out from the office by just gathering as much information as I could. And so we knew where the homicide happened. So in very quick succession, I found the property records for that location, got a name from that property record, Googled it, found an obituary for who I believe to be the deceased person's father from that obituary, found somebody who I believe to be the deceased person's brother, found a lawyer who had that name and who somewhat lived in the neighborhood and called that law office thinking, well, if he's in the office, I obviously have the wrong person because they would have been called away by now. Not thinking about the fact that this woman, like her body was just found like an hour or two before. and. I called and asked for this lawyer and was put right through. And I was like, oh, must not be the right person. And this person answered. And I ended up notifying him that his sister had been murdered. And that is not the way that somebody should get that news. Like research has shown that it is harmful if people do not get death notifications in a proper way by a person who is trained in trauma and, and death notifications and all that stuff. But that was not the only regrettable incident in my career because I was rushing to get that information that I inadvertently notified somebody that their friend or their, their loved one, their close loved one had been murdered or killed in some horrible way. And that is not okay. You know, it's not okay. There's a reason that at least, you know, police in, in the greater Toronto area have become accustomed to if there's a traffic fatality and it involves like a very identifiable vehicle or a children's bike or a, a child's bike, or, you know, you can see the license plate that they will go up to the news media and say, can you just blur out the license plate? Or can you not show this car because we haven't been able to find the next of kin yet? And sometimes the media listens and sometimes they don't. And sometimes somebody at home is turning on the TV and seeing that very recognizable vehicle on that very recognizable route that their loved one takes to work. And suddenly that is how they find out. You know, I had a woman in my book who whose husband was a police officer who was murdered on the job. And she found out that he was dead by seeing him being wheeled into the hospital as paramedics are pumping on his chest and, and her mother recognized his shoes and she had recognized his undercover van at the scene because media was already there. But it was a number of hours still before the police chief showed up at her door to give her the official notification. And that was awful. And that pre presents like a whole other layer of trauma, you know, that the frantic 
trying to find out what's going on is that that wave of trauma is slowly making its way to her door. Thank you, Tamara. I mean, I really admire your honesty with yourself, actually, in terms of reflecting back on on your career and being honest with yourself about has this always been the right thing to do? And I, I think it takes a lot of courage to to do that and, and great to hear that you are doing that. And I've, I think I happened on you by noticing some of those reflections in a post that you put on social media and that drew my attention to your work. And I also spotted around the same time an article by, I think her name was Drew Shah and a journalist who was speaking about the impact of covering traumatic stories. But I, I suppose I'm, I'm wondering why more journalists aren't talking about this and thinking thinking like this, you know, are you a particularly empathic person? Um, what, what's going honest, Honestly, Naomi, I think it's they just don't know. I don't think that there's any real courage or anything in talking about the ways that I got things wrong. As a journalist, I'm just telling the truth. I am, when I began my research and began getting survey responses back on all the ways that we as reporters were getting things wrong, as a journalist, I felt like I was sitting on something that needed to be shouted from the rooftops. This is news. The way that we're doing things is causing harm. We need to come to a better way. And journalists, I I really believe that the vast majority of journalists, just like first responders, they go into their jobs because they want to make a positive difference in this world. And to find out that they are actually causing harm is very troubling. So I don't think, like, I honestly, I don't think there's anything special about me talking about the harm that I caused It's just that I know now. So I have the platform to speak about it because I know I have the research. And I think that as more journalists learn about it, it's not necessarily that they'll be talking about it, but they'll be changing the way that they do things. And I mean, that is my goal, not just for journalists, but for the victim support community, victim services, survivor support workers, whatever you want to call them. Everybody needs to come together and think about how can we tell these very important stories better? How can we do them in a way that is better for the survivors at the center of it, for the news consumers, for the journalists telling the stories, for the investigators, for everybody, because there is a way that it can be done better. And we just need to be having those conversations. I also think that like when I do hear from journalists, like there is most of the time that I hear from journalists, like 99% of the time that journalists reach out to me, it is because they want to say, thank you for talking about this. Nobody ever talks about this stuff. And I always felt like what we do just, it has never sat sat right with me. Or I was a journalist for a number of years and I had to leave because I couldn't take the door knocks anymore. And thank you for talking about this. But every once in a while, I'll I'll hear from a journalist who says like, well, that's the job. And, you know, we need to report the news. So we need to talk to these people. And they're still sort of thinking through that lens of, you know, you need to be an objective fly on the wall, just reporting what you're seeing. And they haven't come to terms with the fact that, you know, we are human beings. We cannot be a, just an objective fly on the wall reporting atrocities that are happening in front of us. It is going to impact us. And the work we're doing is going to impact the people that we're reporting on. So how do we minimize that harm? If we can't eliminate that harm, how do we at least work towards that harm reduction? You know, but ultimately, I think most journalists, they don't want to do harm and they want to be given tools to change the way that they're doing things so that they can still tell these very important stories, but in a better and less harmful way. 
Well, I think you've been probably been a little bit humble, actually, in terms of how you depicted yourself there, because clearly what you're saying really resonates with people, but there aren't loads of people talking about it. So I think there is something quite special about you and your ability to do stand up as a bit of a role model for people and say, actually, can we do better? But it leaves me wondering, what's it like when stories are told by journalists who aren't and empathic those who are more emotionally disconnected or those who who do care less maybe mm-hmm. because the work has has created that sense of disconnect but you know, what does that mean for news that's interesting because it makes me think about a conversation that i had with a colleague of, and a friend of mine after i left my last posting at ctv news toronto and we were at a christmas party at a friend's place And this is somebody who I just love. He's a friend and he's an incredible journalist, an incredible writer. And he was the kind of person that could really encompass the pain and the suffering of an awful event in like a sentence or two. He just had a way of telling stories that was so impactful. And he said to me, you know, the difference between you and me is that you actually cared. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. You obviously care too. He's like, no, you really cared. And I said, but you care, like you're, it came across in your writing, everything said, no, no, you really cared. And I talked to my therapist about this later. And I said, how is it that I could be so impacted by this job that I could suffer so much from this job and he didn't? And first thing I'll say is like, who's to say that he didn't? Maybe he did. And I think that probably he did. But secondly, my therapist told me that different people, they have, you know, different capacities for this stuff and where you are able to shut that off or evoke certain emotions from people to tell a good story. But I still think that unless you are a psychopath, unless you completely lack empathy, I still think that you're not going to want to cause harm. So even though my colleague might've been somebody who could, you know, with his personality or whatever, evoke these emotions without breaking down in tears or whatever to tell a good story. I really think that if I were to tell him that what you're doing is actually causing harm, that he would change the way that he was doing things to, to still tell an impactful story. If you actually have a psychopath and you have somebody without empathy, though, are those in the news business? No doubt there are, because while I said most people I've encountered go into this profession to make a positive difference in the world, there are some who go into the profession because of ego or, you know, they want to be on TV, they want to be famous or whatever it is. And that, and I've seen that, I have, it's rare, but I can certainly point to a couple of reporters that I would never send a trauma survivor to. And that is harmful. Those are the people that like that, it's just more harmful. And it is harmful to everybody for all the reasons that I mentioned. But the worst part is that those are the people that won't necessarily change unless there is systemic change. They're not gonna go behind their boss's back and just say like, they're not gonna tell their bosses, I'm not going to knock on that door again. Or they're not gonna tell their bosses yeah, I already knocked on the door again and they're not talking even what though they didn't knock on the door again because it was the right thing to do. They're just going to keep on doing it because they want to be number one. Like that is dangerous. And that is the reason that while it is amazing when I hear from journalists who say, 
I'm doing things in a different way because of your research or your book or whatever. Things aren't really going to change until we change things from the top down. That is why newsroom managers, victim service providers, homicide investigators, everybody needs to get on board to talk about collaborating with each other and changing this, the whole system by which traumatic stories are shared. Tamara, you started your own PR company in 2019, didn't you? Can you tell us something about what it does and why there's a need for it? Yeah. So as I mentioned, like the name Pickup Communications comes from the act of getting those pickups of those interviews with grieving family members and pictures of their loved ones. So my intention was to act as basically a media liaison for victims of crime. And I launched my company just like it was January 2020 that I officially launched. And we all know what happened a couple months after that with the pandemic. So I had started my company by having all sorts of media or interviews with various police departments, basically asking them to hire me as a consultant to support their trauma survivors. And when the pandemic happened, that all came to a grinding halt as there were other priorities, obviously. Um, and that's when I started my research. And my research was so transformative for me personally. And I so wanted to shout it from the rooftops that I sort of pivoted a little bit. I know people hate that word now since the pandemic, but I still do a lot of work supporting trauma survivors. I do a lot of like pro bono work when survivors reach out to me, but I also do a lot of paid work for organizations that support survivors. So people will hire me to, you know, can you do a trauma-informed interview with these human trafficking survivors to create a video for this awareness event that we're doing? Or can you support this homicide survivor who we are having a campaign around like their case because we're looking for this wanted suspect, but we want to make sure that the survivor is supported. So I will go in and I support survivors by, you know, helping them write statements or reading their statements on their behalf or preparing them for interviews, that sort of thing. I do all sorts of things in that realm, but I also do a lot of work for the stakeholders that surround trauma survivors. So things like training victim service providers about trauma-informed storytelling and how they can better support survivors, training journalists, you know, around trauma-informed storytelling and how they can better take care of themselves by taking care of the people that they're reporting on. And also I just do like public relations work for a lot of people in the trauma realm. So whether they are military veterans or law enforcement entities or firefighters or whatever, that is my that is my bread and butter is trauma survivors and the stakeholders who surround them. Ultimately, just trying to change the system by which trauma survivors share their stories and are impacted by the media, interact with and are impacted by the media. Thank you, uh, Tamara. Today, you've spoken to us with quite searing honesty, I think. How do you look after yourself? A lot differently than I used to, which was before it was basically nothing. Like when I was a journalist, it was crying into my steering wheel on my drives home, going inside, like hugging my husband, maybe crying into his chest before like taking a few deep breaths and being mom, you know, and happy and everything to see my kids and then going and relaxing on Netflix and rinsing and repeating the next day. Now I am a lot more mindful in the work that I do. I see a therapist on a regular basis, even when I don't feel like I need to. I recognize that I need to have an outlet for the trauma that I'm absorbing from other people because I recognize now that it is it does impact my brain. I also am on medication to try to regulate 
you know, my baseline for stress that was so dysregulated from all those years of, you know, the peaks and valleys. I exercise a lot. I've started doing a lot of deep breathing. So when I'm feeling very stressed, I will breathe in for four seconds, hold it for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds. I try to teach the same to my kids. And honestly, like one of the most healing things for me has been talking about this stuff and trying to make a difference. I've learned that helping people is sort of a way for you to heal through your own trauma too. And, you know, just last month I was in Toronto recording my audiobook, and I had been really nervous about this for many months because I was like, there are some really painful parts in that book that I have not looked at since my last big edit that I have never uttered aloud to anybody. And how am I going to read this for my audiobook reporting? And I, what I realized in recording my audiobook that while I did have tears in my eyes during a few particularly painful moments in my book, those tears were driven more by passion than pain. They used to be driven by pain. And now there is still some pain there that I'm still working through with therapy, but it's more my passion to affect change. So that has been very healing to me, but also therapy. And for me, medication has been extremely helpful in regulating my emotions. And like for me, my PTSD is my therapist has told me that I've had would rear its ugly head in when I would like snap on my children. And I would just, my bucket would fill up really quickly and I would just lose it and unpredictable moods and all that stuff. And I don't have that anymore for the most part. I have my moments, but I'm in a much better place now. And I'm just mindful of the need to perform that regular maintenance on my mental health through exercise, through therapy, through deep breathing. I don't do enough yoga. I rarely do it, but I know I should do that. And meditating. I try to just be more mindful and, you know, be with my surroundings and also diversify the work that I do. So while everything I do is trauma, 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 I do still do like the fill-in radio hosting where I can talk about whatever stupid story of the day that has nothing to do with trauma. And while I do a lot of trauma work in that too, like I do, I recognize the power of taking a break from it and doing something totally non-trauma related. So yeah, it used to be all trauma. Now it's a little bit of everything. Good. And, and it sounds from what you've been saying to us today, as if some similar program of self-reflection and self-support should be included for most news reporters. Just as it should be included for anybody whose job involves trauma or interacting with trauma, whether they are corrections workers or a court reporter or a judge or a, a, a crown prosecutor or a police officer or a paramedic or a social worker in a school, a guidance counselor, whatever. There are so many professions out there, nurses, doctors, that their jobs inherently involve trauma. And we need to be building in mental resiliency training into their regular training, not only resiliency to help prevent that harm, but then also proper measures to take care of these people after they have suffered those critical stress injuries so that when they are brought back to work, they are in a healthy space. We have, you know, the first responder community has come a long way. They still have a long way to go. Journalism, they're starting to talk about it, which is great. Corrections, I'm not sure. You can tell me. But there, we're starting to have these conversations. I feel like society is becoming more attuned to the whole trauma-informed phrase. 
And that is a great place to start, but we, we certainly still have a long way to go. Thank you very much, Tamara. And that's been a brilliant conversation. So thank you for coming on and being so candid with us. Thank you both so much for having me. I really appreciate the platform. Brilliant. Thanks very much.